0: Chapter eighty-six of *The Wanderer* or Female Difficulties. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. *The Wanderer* or Female Difficulties by Fanny Burney. Chapter eighty-six. Eleanor, for a considerable time, remained in the same posture, ruminating in silent abstraction, yet giving from time to time emphatic, though involuntary utterance, to short and incoherent sentences. A spirit immortal! Resurrection of the dead! A life to come! Oh, Albert, is there, then, a region where I may hope to see thee again? Suddenly, at length, seeming to recollect herself, Pardon, she cried, Albert, my strangeness, queerness, oddity, what will you call it? I am not the less—oh, no, oh, no, penetrated by your impressive reasoning. Albert—' She lifted up her head, and, looking around, exclaimed with an air of consternation, "'Is he gone?' She arose, and with more firmness said, "'He is right. I mean not, and I ought not, to see him any more.' though dearer to my eyes is his sight than life or light." Looking then, earnestly forwards, as if seeking him, "'Farewell, O Albert,' she cried, "'we now indeed are parted for ever. To see thee again would sink me into the lowest abyss of contempt, and I would rather bear thy hatred. Yet hatred from that soul of humanity! What violence must be put upon its nature! AND HOW CRUEL TO REVERSE SUCH INEFFABLE PHILANTHROPY! NO! HATE ME NOT, MY ALBERT, IT SHALL BE MY OWN CARE THAT THOU SHALT NOT DESPISE ME. SLOWLY SHE THEN WALKED AWAY, FOLLOWED SILENTLY BY Juliet, WHO DURST NOT ADDRESS HER. ANXIOUSLY SHE LOOKED AROUND, TILL, AT SOME DISTANCE, SHE DESCRIED A HORSEMAN. IT WAS Harleigh. SHE STOPPED, DEEPLY MOVED and seemed inwardly to bless him. But when he was no longer in sight, she no longer restrained her anguish, and casting herself upon the turf, groaned rather than wept, exclaiming, "'Must I live, yet behold thee no more? Will neither sorrow nor despair nor even madness kill me? Must nature and her decrepitude alone bring death to Eleanor?" Rising then, and vainly trying again to describe the horse, "'All, all is gone,' she cried, "'and I dare not even die. "'All, all is gone from the lost, unhappy Eleanor, "'but life and misery.'" Turning then, with quickness, to Juliet, while pride and shame dried her eyes. "Ellis," she said, "'let him not know,' I murmur let not his last hearing of Eleanor be disgrace. Tell him, on the contrary, that his friendship shall not be thrown away, nor his arguments be forgotten, or unavailing. No, I will weigh every opinion, every sentiment that has fallen from him, as if every word, unpolluted by human ignorance or informity, had dropped straight from heaven.' I will meditate upon religion, I will humble myself to court resignation, I will fly hence to avoid all temptation of ever seeing him more, and to distract my wretchedness by new scenes. O oh, Albert, I will earn thy esteem by acquiescence in my lot, that here, even here, I may taste the paradise of alluring thee to include me in thy view of happiness hereafter." Her foreign servant, then, came in view and she made a motion to him with her hand for her carriage. She awaited it in profound mental absorption, and when it arrived, placed herself in it without speaking. Juliet, full of tender pity, could no longer forbear saying, "'Adieu, madam, and may peace revisit your generous heart.' Eleanor, surprised and softened, looked at her with an expression of involuntary admiration, as she answered, "I believe you to be good, Ellis. I exonerate you from all delusory arts. And internally I never thought you guilty, or had never feared you. Fool, mad fool that I have been, I am my own executioner. My distracting impatience to learn the depth of my danger was what put you together, taught you to know, to appreciate one another." With my own precipitate hand I have dug the gulf into which I am fallen. Your dignified patience, your noble modesty, O fatal Ellis, presented a contrast that plunged a dagger into all my efforts. Rash, eager idiot, I conceived suspense to be my greatest bane. O fool, eternal fool, self-willed and self-destroying. For the single thrill of one poor moment's returning doubt, I would not suffer martyrdom." She wept, and hid her face within the carriage, but holding out her hand to Juliet. "Adieu, Ellis,' she cried. "'I struggle hardly not to wish you any ill, and I have never given you my malediction. Yet—oh, that you had never been born!' She snatched away her hand and precipitately drew up all the blinds to hide her emotion. But presently, letting one of them down, called out, with resumed vivacity, and an air of gay defiance. Marry him, Ellis, marry him at once. I have always felt that I should be less mad if my honor called upon me for reason, my honor and my pride. The groom demanded orders. Drive to the end of the world she answered impatiently, so you ask me no questions, and forcibly adding, Farewell, too happy, Ellis. She again drew up all the blinds, and, in a minute, was out of sight. Juliet deplored her fate with the sincerest concern, and ruminated upon her virtues and attractive qualities, till their drawbacks diminished from her view— and left nothing but unaffected wonder that Harleigh could resist them. "'Twas a wonder, nevertheless, that every feeling of her heart, in defiance of every conflict, rose, imperiously, to separate from regret. At the cottage she found her recovered property, which she now concluded, for her recollection was gone, that she had dropped upon her entrance into the room occupied by Harleigh, before she had perceived that it was not empty. Here, too, almost immediately afterwards, her messenger returned with a letter, which had remained more than a week at the post office, whither it had been sent back by the farmer, who had refused to risk advancing the postage. The letter was from Gabriella, and sad, but full of business. She had just received a hurrying summons from Mr. de her husband, to join him at Tainmouth, in Devonshire, and, for family reasons which ought not to be resisted, to accompany him abroad. Mr. de had been brought by an accidental conveyance to Torbay, whence, through a particularly favourable opportunity, he was to sail to his place of destination. He charged her to use the utmost expedition and to spare the expense of a double journey and the difficulties of a double passport for and from London, he should procure permission to meet her at Tenmouth, where they might remain till their vessel should be ready. The town of Brixham within Torbay being filled with sailors and unfit for female residence, Gabriella owned that she had nothing substantial nor even rational, to oppose to this plan, though her heart would be left in the grave, the English grave of her adored child. She had relinquished, therefore, her shop, and paid the rent and her debts, and obtained money for the journey by the sale of all her commodities. She then tenderly entreated, if no insurmountable obstacles forbid it, that Juliet would be of their party and gave the direction of Mr. De, at Tinmouth. Not a moment could Juliet hesitate upon joining her friend, though whether or not she should accompany her abroad, she left for decision at their meeting. She greatly feared the delay in receiving the letter might make her arrive too late, but the experiment was well worth trial, and she reached the beautifully situated small town of Tinmouth the next morning she drove to the lodging of which Gabriella had given the direction, where she had the affliction to learn that the lady whom she described, and her husband, had quitted Tenmouth the previous evening for Torbay. She instantly demanded fresh horses for following them, but the postilion said that he must return directly to Exeter with his chaise, and inquired where she would alight where she might most speedily, she answered, find means to proceed. The postilion drove her, then, to a large lodging-house, but the town was so full of company, as it was the season for bathing, that there was no chaise immediately ready, and she was obliged to take possession of a room, till some horses returned. As soon as she had deposited her baggage, she resolved upon walking back to the late lodging of Gabriella, to seek some further information. In repassing a gallery, which led from her chamber to the stairs, she perceived, upon a bandbox left at the half-closed door of what appeared to be the capital apartment, the love-name of Lady Aurora Granville. Joy, hope, fondness, and every pleasurable emotion danced suddenly in her breast, and chasing away, by surprise, all fearful caution, irresistibly impelled her to push open the door. All possibility of concealment was, she knew, now at an end, and with it finished her long forbearance. How sweet to cast herself, at length, under so benign a protection, to build upon the unalterable sweetness of Lady Aurora for a consolatory reception, and openly to claim her support. Filled with these delighting ideas, she gently entered the room. It was empty, but the door to an inner apartment being open, she heard the soft voice of Lady Aurora giving directions to some servant. While she hesitated whether, at once, to venture on, or to send in some message, a chambermaid, coming out with another band-box, shut the inner door. The dress of Juliet was no longer such as to make her appearance in a capital apartment suspicious, and the chambermaid civilly inquired whom she was pleased to want. "'Lady Aurora Granville,' she hesitatingly answered, adding that she would tap at her ladyship's door herself, and begging that the maid would not wait. The maid, busy and active, hurried off. Quickly then, though softly, Juliet stepped forward— but at the door, trembling and full of fears, she stopped short, and the sight of pen, ink, and paper upon a table determined her to commit her attempt to writing. Seizing a sheet of paper, without sitting down, and in a hand scarcely legible, she began. Is Lady Aurora Granville still the same Lady Aurora, the kind, the benignant, the indulgent Lady Aurora? when the sound of another voice, a voice more discordant, if possible, than that of Lady Aurora had been melodious, reached her ear from under the window. It was that of Mrs. Howell. As shaking now with terror, as before she had been trembling with hope, she rolled up her paper, and was hurrying it into her work-bag, which had been returned to her by Harleigh, when the chambermaid, re-entering the room, stared at her with some surprise, demanding whether she had seen her ladyship. "'No, I believe she's occupied,' Juliet stammering answered, and flew along the gallery back to her chamber. That Lady Aurora should be under the care of Mrs. Howell, who was the nearest female relation of Lord Denmeath, could give no surprise to Juliet but the impulse which had urged her forward had only painted to her precious interview with Lady Aurora alone. For how venture to reveal herself in presence of so hard, so inimical a witness? The very idea, joined to the terrible apprehension of irritating Lord Denmeath, to aid some new attack from her legal persecutor, so damped her rising joy, so repressed her buoyant hopes, that— to avoid the insupportable repetition of injurious interrogatories painful explanations and insulting incredulity she decided if she could join gabriella at torbay to accompany her to her purposed retreat and there to await either intelligence of the bishop or an open summons from her own family she hastened therefore to the late lodging of gabriella where, upon a more minute investigation, she found that a message had been left, in case a lady should call to inquire for Madame de, to say that the small vessel in which Monsieur de, and herself were humanely to be received as passengers, was ready to sail, and to promise to write upon their landing, and to endeavour to fix upon some means of reunion. The lady, the lodging people said, said, had lost all hope of her friend's arrival, but had left that message in case of accidents. More eagerly than ever, Juliet now inquired for any kind of carriage, but the town was full, and every vehicle was engaged till the next morning. The next morning opened with a new and cruel disappointment. The chambermaid came with excuses that no chaise could be had till towards evening, as the Honourable Mrs. Howell had engaged all the horses to carry herself and her people to Chedley Park. Dreadful to the impatience of Juliet was such a loss of time, yet she shrunk from all appeal upon her prior rights with Mrs. Howell. Still, not to render impossible, before her departure, an interview after which her heart was sighing, with Lady Aurora, She addressed to her a few lines. To the Right Honourable Lady Aurora Granville Brought hither in search of the friend of my earlier youth What have been my perturbation, my hope, my fear At the sound of the voice of her whom, proudly and fondly, It is my first wish to be permitted to love And to claim as the friend of my future days. Ah, Lady Aurora, my inmost soul is touched and moved, Nevertheless, not to press upon the difficulties of your delicacy, nor to take advantage of the softness of your sensibility, I go hence without imploring your support or countenance. I quit again this loved land, scarcely known, though devoutly revered, to watch and wait, far, far off, for tidings of my future lot. I go to join the generous guardian of my orphan life, Till I know whether I may hope to be acknowledged by a brother. I go to dwell with my noble adopted sister, till I learn whether I may be recalled to be owned by one still nearer, and who alone can be still dearer.' She gave this paper sealed for delivery to the chambermaid, saying that she was going to take a long walk, and desiring, should there be any answer, "'that it might carefully be kept for her return. "'This measure was to give Lady Aurora time to reflect, "'whether or not she should demand an explanation of the note, "'rather than to surprise the first eager impulse of her kindness. "'She then bent her steps towards the seaside. "'But though it was still very early, "'there was so much company upon the sands, "'taking exercise before or after bathing,' That she soon turned another way, and, invited by the verdant freshness of the prospects, rambled on for a considerable time, at first with no other design than to while away a few hours, but afterwards to give to those hours the pleasure ever new, ever instructive, of viewing and studying the works of nature, which, on this charming spot, now awfully noble, now elegantly simple, where the sea and the land, the one sublime in its sameness, the other, exhilarating in its variety, seemed to be presented, as if in primeval lustre, to the admiring eye of a meditative being. She clambered up various rocks, nearly to their summit, to enjoy, in one grand perspective, the stupendous expansion of the ocean. Glittering with the brilliant rays of a bright and cloudless sky, dazzled, she descended to their base, to repose her sight upon the soft yet lively tint of the green turf, and the rich yet mild hue of the downy moss. Almost sinking now from the scorching beams of a nearly vertical sun, she looked round for some umbrageous retreat. But refreshed the next moment by salubrious sea-breezes, by the coolness of the rocks, or by the shade of the trees, she remained stationary and charmed, a devoutly adoring spectritus of the lovely yet magnificent scenery encircling her, so vast in its glory, so impressive in its details, of wild, varied nature, apparently in its original state. When at length she judged it to be right to return, upon coming within sight of the lodging-house, she saw a carriage at the door, into which some lady was mounting. Could it be Lady Aurora? Could she so depart after reading her letter? She retreated till the carriage drove off, and then, at the foot of the stairs, met the chambermaid, of whom she eagerly asked whether there were any letter or message for her, from Lady Aurora. The maid answered no, her ladyship was gone away without saying anything. The words gone away extremely affected Juliet, who, in ascending to her room, wept bitterly at such a desertion, even while concluding it to have been exacted by Mrs. Howell. She rang the bell, to inquire whether she might now have a chaise. The chambermaid told her that she must come that very moment to speak to a lady. "What lady?" cried Juliet, ever awake to hope. "Is Lady Aurora Granville come back?" "No, no," Lady Aurora was gone to Chudleigh. "What lady then?" "Missus Howell," the maid answered, who ordered her to come that instant. "Tis a mistake," said Juliet with spirit. "'You must seek some other person to whom to deliver such a message.' "'The maid would have asserted her exactitude in executing her commission, but Juliet, declining to hear her, insisted upon being left. Extremely disturbed, she could suggest no reason why Mrs. Howell should remain when Lady Aurora was gone, nor divine whether her letter were voluntarily unanswered, or whether it had even been delivered.' nor what might still instigate the unrestrained arrogance of Mrs. Howell. In a few minutes the chambermaid returned, to acquaint her that, if she did not come immediately, Mrs. Howell would send for her in another manner. Too indignant now for fear, Juliet said that she had no answer to give to such a message, and charged the maid not to bring her any other. Another, nevertheless, and ere she had a moment to breathe, followed, which was still more peremptory, and to which the chambermaid sneeringly added, You want to let me look into your work-bag, will you? Why should you look into my work-bag? Nay, it been to I as want to do it, it would be Madam Howell. And for what purpose? Nay, I can't say, but I do say I lost a bank-note what have I or my work-bag to do with that?" Nay, I don't know, but it been I had taken it, and it been I—she stopped, grinning significantly, but finding that Juliet deigned not to ask an explanation, went on. It been I as hustled Zomat into my work-bag, in such a peck o' trouble of war to hide it. It been I, for there be no mortal mon, nor woman neither, I be afeard of. For I do take no man's goods but my own. Juliet now was thunderstruck. If a bank-note were missing, Appearances, from her silently entering and quitting the room, Were certainly against her. And though it could not be difficult To clear away such a suspicion, It was shocking, past endurance, To have such a suspicion to clear. While she hesitated what to reply, The maid, not doubting but that her embarrassment was guilt, triumphantly continued her own defence, saying, whoever might be suspected, it could not be she, for she did not go into other people's rooms, not she, to peer about and see what was to be seen, nor say she was going to call upon grand gentlefolks when she was not going to do any such thing, not she, nor tear paper upon other people's tables, to roll things up and poke them into her work-bag. Not she! She had nothing to hide, for there was nothing she took, so there was nothing she had to be ashamed of. Not she!" She then mutteringly walked off, but almost instantly returned, desiring to know, in the name of Mrs. Howell, whether Miss Ellis preferred that the business of her examination should be terminated, before proper witnesses in her own room. Juliet, thus assailed, urged by judgment and a sense of propriety, struggled against personal feelings and fears, and resolved to rescue not only herself, but her family from the disgrace of a public interrogatory. She walked, therefore, straight forward to the apartment of Mrs. Howell, determined to own, without delay, her birth and situation, rather than submit to any indignity. At the entrance she made way for the chambermaid to announce her, but when she heard that voice, which, to her shocked ears, sounded far more hoarse, more harsh, and more coarse than the raven's croak, her spirits nearly forsook her. To cast herself thus upon the powerful enmity of Lord Dunmeath, with no kind lady aurora at hand to soften the hazardous tale by her benignant pity no generous lord melbury within call to resist perverse incredulity by spontaneous support and promised protection twas dreadful yet no choice now remained no possible resource she must meet her fate or run away as a culprit the latter she utterly disdained, and at the words, loudly spoken, from the inner room, Order her to appear! She summoned to her aid all that she possessed of pride or of dignity, to disguise her apprehensions, and obeyed the imperious mandate. Mrs. Howell, seated upon an easy-chair, receiving her with an air of prepared scorn, in which, nevertheless was mixed some surprise at the elegance, yet propriety, of her attire. Young woman, she sternly said, what part is this you are acting, and what is it you suppose will be its result? Can you imagine that you are to brave people of condition with impunity? You have again dared to address, clandestinely and by letter, a young lady of quality, whom you know to be forbidden to afford you any countenance you have entered my apartment under false pretenses. You have been detected precipitately quitting it, thrusting something into your work-bag, evidently taken from my table. Juliet now felt her speech restored by contempt. I by no means intended, madam, she dryly answered, to have intruded upon your benevolence, The sheet of paper which I took was to write to Lady Aurora Granville, and I imagined, mistakenly it seems, that it was already her ladyship's. The calmness of Juliet operated to produce a storm in Mrs. Howell that fired all her features. Though, deeming it unbecoming her rank in life, to show anger to a person beneath her, she subdued her passion into sarcasm, and said— her ladyship, then, it seems, is to provide the paper with which you write to her, as well as the clothes with which you wait upon her. That she refuses herself whatever is not indispensable, in order to make up a secret purse, has long been clear to me, and I now, in your assumed garments, behold the application of her privations. O oh, Lady Aurora, lovely and loved Lady Aurora, have you indeed this kindness for me, this heavenly goodness? interrupted, from a sensibility that she would not seek to repress, the penetrated Juliet. "'Unparalleled assurance!' exclaimed Mrs. Howell. "'And do you think thus triumphantly to gain your sinister ends? "'No, Lady Aurora will never see your letter. "'I have already dispatched it to my lord Denmeath.' The spirit of Juliet now instantly sunk. She felt herself again betrayed into the power of her persecutor, again seized, and trembled so exceedingly, that she with difficulty kept upon her feet. Mrs. Howell exultingly perceived her advantage. "'What!' she haughtily demanded, has brought you hither, and why are you here? If indeed you approach the seaside with a view to embark, and return whence you came, I am far from offering any impediment to so befitting a measure. My Lord Denmeath, I have reason to believe, would even assist it. Speak, young woman, have you sense enough of the unbecoming situation in which you now stand, to take so proper a course for getting to your home? My home, repeated Juliet, casting up her eyes, which bedewed with tears at the word, she then covered with her handkerchief. If to go thither be your intention, said Mrs. Howell, the matter may be accommodated. Speak, then. The little madam that I meant to say, cried Juliet, I must beg leave to address to you when you are alone. For the waiting woman still remained at the side of the toilet table. At length, then, said Mrs. Howell, much gratified, though always scornful, you mean to confess? And she told her woman to hasten the packing up, and then to step into the next room. Think, however she continued, deliberate in this interval upon what you think you are going to do. I have already heard the tale which I have seen by your letter you hint at propagating, heard it from my lord Denmeath himself, but so idle a fabrication, without a single proof or document in its support, will only be considered as despicable. If that, therefore, is the subject upon which you propose to entertain me in this tete-a-tete, be advised to change it untried." Such stale tricks are only to be played upon the inexperienced. You may well blush, young woman. I am willing to hope it is with shame." "'You force me, madam, to speak,' indignantly cried Juliet, "'though you will not thus publicly force me to an explanation. For your own sake, madam, for decency's, if not for humanity's sake, press me no further till we are alone, or the blush with which you upbraid me now may hereafter be yours.' and not a blush like mine from the indignation of innocence injured, yet unsullied, but the blush of confusion and shame, latent yet irrepressible. Rage, now, is a word inadequate to express the violent feelings of Mrs. Howell, which nevertheless she still strove to curb under an appearance of disdain. You would spare me, then! she cried, this humiliation. And you suppose I can listen to such arrogance? Undeceive yourself, young woman, and produce the contents of your work-bag at once, or expect its immediate seizure for examination by an officer of justice. "'What, madam, do you mean?' cried Juliet, endeavouring, but not very successfully, to speak with unconcern. "'To allow you the choice of more or fewer witnesses to your boasted innocence.' "'If your curiosity, madam,' said Juliet, more calmly, yet not daring any longer to resist, "'is excited to take an inventory of my small property, I must endeavour to indulge it.' She was preparing to untie the strings of her work-bag, when a sudden recollection of the bank-notes of Harleigh, for the possession of which she could give no possible account, checked her hand, and changed her countenance. Mrs. Howell, perceiving her embarrassment, yet more haughtily said, "'Will you deliver your work-bag, young woman, to Rollins?' "'No, madam,' answered Juliet, reviving with conscious dignity, "'I will neither so far offend myself at this moment, nor you for every moment that shall follow. I can deliver it only into your own hands.' "'Enough!' cried Mrs. Howell. "'Rollins, order Hilson to inquire out the magistrate of this village, and to desire that he will send to me some peace-officer immediately.' She then opened the door of a small inner room, into which she shut herself, with an air of deadly vengeance. Mrs. Rollins, at the same time, passed to the outer room, to summon Hilson. Juliet, confounded, remained alone. She looked from one side to the other expecting either that Mrs. Howell would call upon her, or that Mrs. Rollins would return for further orders. Neither of them reappeared, or spoke. Alarmed now, yet more powerfully than disgusted, she compelled herself to tap at the door of Mrs. Howell, and to beg admission. She received no answer. A second and a third attempt failed equally, Affrighted, more seriously, she hastened to the outer room, where a man—Hilson, she supposed—was just quitting Mrs. Rollins. "'Mrs. Rollins,' she cried, "'I beseech you not to send anyone off till you have received fresh directions.' Mrs. Rollins desired to know whether this were the command of her lady. "'It will be,' Juliet replied, "'when I have spoken to her again.' Mrs. Rollins answered that her lady was always accustomed to be obeyed at once, and told Tilson to make haste. Juliet entreated for only a moment's delay, but the man would not listen. Though from justice Juliet could have nothing to fear, the idea of being forced to own herself, when a peace officer was sent for, to avoid being examined as a criminal, filled her with such horror and affright that, calling out, "'Stop, stop, I beseech you, stop!' She ran after the man, with a precipitate eagerness, that made her nearly rush into the arms of a gentleman, who, at that moment, having just passed by Hilson, filled up the way. Without looking at him, she sought to hurry on, but, upon his saying, "'I ask pardon, ma'am, for barricading your passage in this sort,' she recognised the voice of her first patron, the Admiral." charmed with the hope of succour. "'Is it you, sir?' she cried. "'Oh, sir, stop that person, call to him, bid him return, I implore you.' "'To be sure I will, ma'am,' answered he, courteously taking off his hat, though appearing much amazed, and hallooing after Hilson. ye, my lad, be so kind to veer about a bit.' Hilson, not venturing to show disrespect to the uniform of the admiral, stood still. The admiral, then, putting on his hat, and conceiving his business to be done, was passing on, and Hilson, grinning at the short-lived impediment, was continuing his route, but the calls and pleadings of Juliet made the admiral turn back, and, in a tone of authority, and with the voice of a speaking-trumpet, angrily cry, "'Halloo there! Tack about and come hither, my lad!' What do you go t'other way for when a lady calls you? By George, if they had you aboard, they'd soon teach you better manners. Juliet, again addressing him, said, Oh, sir, how good you are! How truly benevolent! Detain him but till I speak with his lady, and I shall be obliged to you eternally. To be sure I will, ma'am, answered the wondering admiral. He shan't pass me. You may depend upon that. Juliet, meaning now to make her sad and forced confession, re-entered the first apartment, and was soliciting, through Mrs. Rollins, for an audience with Mrs. Howell, when Hilson, sorely returning, preceded the petitioner to his lady, and complained that he had been set upon by a bully of the young woman's. Mrs. Howell, coming forth, with a wrath that was deaf to prayer or representation, gave orders that the master of the house should be called to account for such an insult to one of her people. The master of the house appearing made a thousand excuses for what had happened, but said he could not be answerable for people's falling to words upon the stairs. Mrs. Howell insisted upon reparation, and that those who had affronted her people should be told to go out of the house, or she herself would never enter it again. The landlord declared that he did not know how to do such a thing, for the gentleman was his honour the admiral, who has come to spend two or three days there from the shipping at Torbay. If it were a general officer who had acted thus, she said, he could certainly give some reason for his conduct, and she desired the landlord to ask it of him in her name. In vain, during this debate, Juliet made every concession save that of delivering her work-bag to the scrutiny of Mrs. Rollins. Nothing less would satisfy the enraged Mrs. Howell, who resisted all overtures for a tete-a-tete, determined publicly to humble the object of her wrath. The admiral, who was found standing sentinel at the door, desired an audience of the lady himself. Mrs. Howell accorded it with readiness, ordering Hilson— Mrs. Rollins and the landlord to remain in the room. End of chapter eighty-six. Recording by Roxana Nazari.